0: Hello and welcome to episode 50 of the figure podcast, a monthly conversation between George Parkin and Charlotte Lorimer. Each episode, we look at a person, number and image. And this month, it's obviously a big deal because it's 50th. Congratulations, Shaw. Happy 50th. You too, Pod wife. <laughs> I feel like we're a lot older and wiser than when we
1: started. Yeah, it feels like a very long time ago now. May 2018. Yeah. And in that time, I was doing a little statistical search on our podcast platform. This year, we've been downloaded in 62 countries. So thank you so much to everybody who keeps on listening. We have either one very eager listener in El Segundo, near Los Angeles. And if we do, thank you for listening. It's a group. So if one person's listened and then passed it around to your friends, also thank you. And then there's all sorts of countries where I don't know anybody in these countries. So that's also quite encouraging.
0: <laughs> it's because people do listen that don't know us. <laughs> Maybe
1: all the people who know us have stopped listening and now we've just got this listener base <laughs> of people we've never met. But we do really, we'd love to hear from you. So if you do want to send us a message... Um, our Instagram is at figurepodcast and our DMs are open
0: Absolutely, so send us slide a- in, <laughs> slide in, it's an invitation Shall we get started with some recommendations? <laughs> yes, it's been a big month, November Kick us off, what's your um, first recommendation? Okay, let's go with podcasts first So, the first is the Megyn Kelly show And the second is the Joe Rogan experience Yes, I am very late to the game But not as late as me. I'm glad I'm here. I've listened to Matthew McConaughey, um, Miley Cyrus, Russell Brand, Ben Shapiro, Joe Rogan is pretty incredible, very easy to listen to. And um you'll remember Megan Kelly. Do you remember Megan Kelly Shaw? No, I don't remember her. Who is she? Does it ring a bell. It does ring well, a bell. Controversial figure. She is a lawyer, was then on Fox News for 13 years I think she was the moderator that you remember when Trump was doing one of his debates for the original presidential campaign and he said she gave him a question about electability she said you know you've called women pigs disgusting animals slobs how do you expect the female vote to go in your favor and he didn't like that question And he, like later that evening, said she had blood coming out of her nose, blood coming out of her wherever, insinuating that it was like menstrual rage, basically. And she then had a year of, you know, intense like media scrutiny and so many death threats and had to have security and all this stuff. And she's a very interesting figure to watch because she's very... She's just extremely resilient. Like, doesn't, she doesn't come across as anything breaks her. She was in the film Bombshell. Really good film. It was about the story of Fox News and the harassment uh, case against Roger Ailes. And she's kind of the main character in that. Anyway, she moved on from Fox News to MSNBC and had her own show. And she got fired suddenly because she was talking about blackface. And I think she had made a comment, something like, you know, when I was younger, blackface was deemed OK if it was a Halloween costume. And she was fired and kind of took a year out of the spotlight um, and to now come back with her podcast. And I really enjoy listening to it. It's very down the line in terms of its political point of view. And she has lots of interesting people that she invites on, lots of interesting conversation. Is it
1: um, something you listen to because you don't necessarily agree with everything that she says and you find it
0: interesting to entertain a different point of view? She's definitely like slightly right wing, I guess. She has very interesting thinkers on her show. And I think the main points that she's making about freedom of speech is actually the most important liberty that we will have. And so I've been really enjoying listening to that. And I think as well with the election coverage, I think we can get very caught up in all the things that we choose to read because they're very much what we, our point of view, and we don't necessarily hear the other perspective. Totally. And the data
1: is is designed to make that (laughs) even more of a bubble. In that Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, That was what it was talking about because Mm -hmm. the data that you're generating ends up influencing the stories that you see on your newsfeed. Exactly.
0: Really dangerous. And she talks a lot about cancel culture because obviously she got cancelled, as it were. Whereas Justin Trudeau, president of Canada, has actually dressed up in blackface, like done it himself, not talked about it, done it. And he was not cancelled. I think there's just like a lot of weird double standards going on. I'd also argue as well because she's also female. I think that doesn't help. Mm. Um,
1: and with the Donald yeah. Trump thing, do you think that that was sort of the the first spark because she had obviously angered people who supported Trump and then they were the ones who that doesn't that seems very counterintuitive that then if she had hate from
0: Trump supporters that then they wouldn't like what she said about blackface? I think I think she was just cancelled by that kind of mass of people who have certain rules about what you're allowed to say are not allowed to say, um, I think it's really dangerous. People are, you know, we've spoken about this a lot, like off podcast about how actually, like where are the lines of freedom of speech nowadays? How much are we punished for asking questions? And surely the power of education is in asking questions and being curious. And again, that's not to say that what she, her comments were right or wrong, but the fact that this person's this very experienced person with 20 years of broadcasting experience got fired. It's just like, what, what, why? Who decides that? Well, maybe there were other things that we don't know about. But um, probably there's always a bigger story, but I agree it's it's a real double standard. Yeah. So, so yeah, I enjoyed her podcast. It's really insightful, really interesting I've also started reading uh, Barack Obama's autobiography about halfway through. Really good. It's called A Promised Land and it takes you through the story of the, his campaign and the early days of his presidency. Great. Uh, okay, we have got to talk about The Crown next. Okay. What are your thoughts? Loved it. Watched it. I, I had a hard time rationing it. I watched it every single day. It's just a beautiful viewing experience. You know, they obviously have so much budget for this and it is wonderful. I loved learning all these different things that I didn't know about events that had happened. And, you know, getting texts from people being like, did Diana really perform in a theatre in front of everyone? And then people being like, anyone could tell you that Charles would find that horrendous. Why on earth do you think that was a good idea? That sort of thing. Reliving the Thatcher years, actually thinking about, God, what was it like in Britain in the 80s? Uh, Growing up, I grew up in a household anyway that idealised Thatcher uh, and looking at the reality of a lot of the decisions that she made. Not that this is necessarily factual, but I did look up most of this afterwards and all the events that happened are true. It's just the dialogue that is made up. But they did not hold anything back. If this were my family, it'd be hard to watch. I don't think I could watch it. It's harsh. paints the family in a very difficult way but you do end up having sympathy I felt for everyone involved other than the queen actually I did think the queen was just overall I was just like that's interesting I thought Olivia Colman was much softer and more
1: like easier to get to know in a way in this season in the last one she just felt so distant and cold and I didn't really warm to her at all and in this one there were just certain things she's like who is billy Joel? (laughs) it's things like that and like she's there with her corgis and little details i just really thought it was done very beautifully and i agree it's just it's incredibly nuanced though you you have a really full deep understanding of each character and where they are and you're right it's just this um it says they're talking about in my favorite episode which was the one on mental health and the Bose lion family members who were locked away did you know about that I had no idea about that. No idea either, nothing, no idea. It's this capsule episode. of Bonham Carter is absolutely sensational in it. And you don't have to watch any other episode of The Crown to watch that one episode for right. one hour. <clears throat> learn about them, dive in, get some incredibly dramatic, beautifully written scenes and learn something about a family, like many families who've locked people away when mm-hmm. it hasn't been cycly mm-hmm. or for whatever reason, it's just a different culture. And I hope that there's a different
0: culture in Britain today, but we still have a lot of taboo around certain topics. Totally. I do actually think that about series four as a whole, though, you don't need to have watched anything of The Crown before to enjoy it. They're very easy to watch in that sense. It does take you in and you can follow it. I agree that the episode was really good. And on that mental health note, I saw a lot of criticism about uh, the portrayal of Diana's eating disorder You know, some people didn't even want to see it, right? They they thought, gosh, that's far too graphic. Uh, I heard others talk about how they very much portrayed her eating disorder as almost like a response to, like, boredom and didn't actually properly explore the nuance of why she was doing that. Um, I guess you probably see that a bit more clearly as it goes on. But I feel like it just you suddenly just see her purging and it's like, whoa, okay. They haven't really fully worked up to that enough i agree with Uh, that and actually i have i I mean i know the story of diana and i have so much background information that it for me it was in all in context but i was watching it with a couple people who had never seen it before and didn't really know much about it and they were just like oh god what is going on um i think they didn't make it clear either that and this is based on the evidence
1: of the interviews that diana gave herself Mm-hmm. her bulimia started a week after they got engaged. And what they don't make clear is that she hasn't done this before. This is, it's the engagement, then the bulimia. And it doesn't, you know, you're missing that kind of context because when they insert that scene, she could have been doing that before and then it's a continuation of a habit. Do you know what I mean? So I think mm. you're right. They didn't um,
0: introduce it
1: with yeah. enough
0: information. yeah. I think actually with Diana generally, I thought that the actress was brilliant who played her. There was something about her voice that was so similar. But I would have loved them to have developed her a bit more. I actually was expecting to see more of Diana in this series. And we do see Diana, but actually she does come across as quite annoying a lot of the time. I don't think they go deep enough into properly looking at where was her decision-making coming from? Why did she act that way? Why did she make decisions that were so blatantly? Why did she think that was a good idea? And I think they got the context of the background of Charles and Camilla was, was there. But I would have loved to have seen a bit more human of Diana, because what they ended up doing is having these shots of Diana then sneaking in the man that she was seeing. And I feel like it was so, she was slightly trivialised a little bit.
1: Yeah I know what you mean and I think one of the key things that they were missing is the fact that when she was six years old her mother left her family and Diana used to sit and wait on the step waiting for her mother to come back which she never did and Mm -hmm. I didn't know that until I went on as I'm sure everybody else did went from The Crown to every Diana documentary I can get my hands on. (laughs) Absolutely yeah. And it's just fascinating. But I think that all the interviews that she's done has obviously informed not only the script of The Crown, but the way that Emma Mm. Corrin has played her. And she has absolutely nailed the voice and the movement. Mm -hmm. And again, I agree. Well, maybe they'll do this in the next season. What I loved is the the difference between the way that she approaches different um, public events so whereas every other family member in the royal family will stand back sometimes with their hands behind their backs wearing gloves yeah. and yeah. walk along past the people she mm-hmm. would literally crouch down to the level of the children reach her hands out give people hugs all of these different movements and moments that made her the beloved person that she is and I don't think they quite captured that as well as they could but maybe that will come later we'll see
0: yeah, um, I agree. I agree. And and I do think that they did portray Diana and Charles needing, they almost needed the same thing and it wasn't each other. They actually had very similar upbringings. You know, they had cold, distant parenting. And what Charles was seeking was someone like Camilla, extremely secure, quiet, just like very, like just a pillar of kind of strength and stability. And Diana needed that too, just her own version. And Charles just wasn't that. The other thing that they didn't explore enough, which again,
1: I've gained from documentaries is that there was this whole virginity aspect that the, whoever ended up marrying Charles had to be a virgin. And the, she apparently yeah. had people like vouch for her virginity, which is just weird. Yeah. Cause she didn't date. And that's people. why, partly why there was such a huge age difference between yeah. them. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think the other thing to say on the crown, cause we, we could literally talk the entire episode about I know. this clearly. Um, <laughs> I loved the way that they did symbolic things. So in the first episode with the whole hunting and hunted, and yes. it just feels so dramatic. And it's like loads of frames were just pictures. And there was very little dialogue in lots of the episodes, but you got the story completely. And it was as if you were looking at a series of paintings, which were just perfectly capturing the drama of that one moment. Absolutely. There were certain moments though that I thought that they made it too harsh or too threatening or too cruel for from members of the royal family and I think that it was just not really necessary and I think the other thing is that people too many people will watch this and forget that it's fictionalized which the actors in themselves in the interviews they've always emphasized that but it's almost like the crown has got this reputation. And from the early seasons where they've had all these researchers, and it has been incredibly close to the truth in previous seasons. And it's like, they've Mm. gained all that trust and then they've got to season four and then they've really over-dramatized it in lots of ways. And now Mm. we're kind of questioning and we're Googling constantly of like, did that happen? Did that not happen? But it
0: all did to be be fair. Every event
1: did happen. And the totally, but Um, the dialogue I think has been over-dramatized into, in
0: lots of scenes. And we don't know if the dialogue in the earlier seasons is right either. I mean, that's True. that's been dramatised. I know what they were trying to say in the episode with Thatcher and favourite children. The decision to make it look like the decision to go into the Falklands War was off an emotional decision because your child was missing. I thought that was a very weird. The timings don't line draw. up on that one. I don't. No, think. I think they're um, a year off. Yeah. So I thought like that was weird to put that in. It's also sometimes a bit
1: annoying when they've put a huge historical inaccuracy like that in, like the timings or with Charles and the Avalanche. he They never suspected that he'd died. And I don't know that it actually added enough for them to justify having bent the truth that much. Moving on, I have two quick podcast recommendations one of which is kristen scott thomas on front row talking about why she took up the role of mrs danvers in rebecca which we talked about last time Mm. and a whole deep dive into her career and it's just wonderful i loved it um the other is dolly alderton on jay rayner's podcast which is um called out to lunch have you ever listened to this i
0: listened to that episode it's great did you like
1: it yeah it was great It's a really beautiful podcast. And actually Dolly said on it that she loves listening to that podcast as well. And she listened to it through lockdown because she was on her own and she was really missing that background noise of people at a restaurant. And it was so comforting listening to everyone just there, like clinking their glasses. And it's really lovely. I'd recommend that podcast very highly. And lastly... I want to do a little dedication to the Hilo, which is Dolly's podcast with Pandora Sykes. And if it hadn't been for the Hilo, I don't think that I would have agreed to start this podcast. Um, (laughs) And it's, you know, we come from very similar backgrounds and maybe that is too much of a bubble, but there is a certain amount of comfort that comes from seeing two people who are also young women have similar voices to us, which I've sometimes felt very self-conscious about. And just discussing things, having fun, learning about things and sharing it. And they haven't got a background in presenting or radio or, and they've just done it. And they've brought a lot of insight and a lot of great recommendations and a lot of fun to a lot of people. So they
0: are ending after four years. I can't believe, I actually can't believe it, but I guess fair enough, sort of all good things do come to an end. And in all honesty, I stopped listening to it probably from August of this year. I used to listen to it religiously every week, like wait for it to come out, that kind of podcast. And when I did listen to it, I still loved it. But actually, I feel like it got too big, like it was too successful. And with too much success comes too much criticism. And then it means that they can't have the creative freedom that they did back in the day.
1: I agree with that. And I think that actually in the last couple of months, they've brought it back to what it, closer to what it used to be when there was more freedom and more silliness, which I've really, really enjoyed. But I think there was a dip in the middle where they did get, they clearly were under so much pressure that it did impact Yeah. the quality of the conversations and just how guarded you could just sense that they were just nervous all the time. Mm. Mm. Um, But what I'd really recommend for anybody who is in need of the spirit of Christmas, go and listen to the Pandoli podcast, which is what preceded the Hilo, the Christmas yeah. special. Super it's, random. So funny. It is absolutely brilliant. Honestly, I think I'm going to go and listen to the entire archive of the Pandoli podcast again, because it's just so uplifting and bubbly and fun. That's my last recommendation. The first figure that we are going to talk about today for our 50th episode, we thought it should be somebody extra special. We've chosen David Attenborough, who was born in 1926, which means that he is 94 years old. And his most recent release of film is on Netflix. It's called A Life on Our Planet. And I absolutely loved it. I don't know about you, G. But it explores the decline of biodiversity throughout his 94 years, while also inserting all sorts of lovely clips and discoveries that he's had throughout his career. So I feel like I learned about his life at the same time as learning about life on Earth. And then I've also read the book of the same name, Uh, which I would highly recommend. And I am going to give you a little quiz of fun facts based on things I've learned in the book later on.
0: Wonderful. Love a good quiz. I personally loved that it was arced with this Chernobyl background, which is so interesting because it's like amongst the example of ultimate destruction, animals and plants come back in and life comes back in.
1: Yeah, I love that too. And the point that he was making really around that, which is an absolutely brilliant metaphor, is that nature and the world is will continue regardless of what we keep doing to it. Right. The question is, do we want to be part of it? Because the way that we are acting and the way we are treating our home at the moment means that it's not going to be habitable for humans if we keep on carrying on in 100 years even. If the temperature of the world goes to the point where we can't grow any crops anymore, people, we just won't survive. And in connection to that, I have recently watched Interstellar, which is obviously one of the most critically acclaimed films ever. I don't know how it's taken me so long to watch it. Mind blown, absolutely phenomenal. But what I found interesting is that it's inspired my brother to go off and look at loads of different things to do with space and learning about it. And He was telling me, I watched it with him, which was great. And he found it very entertaining because I was literally on edge for the entirety of the film. But he's been very inspired to look at space. Whereas I look at it and I go, well, why aren't we focusing more and putting more energy into protecting this planet rather than looking outside for this like extra home that we might have to go to?
0: Do you know what I mean? it's a big debate about that isn't there is the money better spent not exploring space i can see both sides i think why not explore space and planets it's 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 part of our universe as well i just think the argument is that even if the money was given to the earth it wouldn't actually be spent on preserving it necessarily so i don't think we can control it in that way the reality is, is not there, there there are still a lot of people who are skeptical of climate change, conservation, what resources we allocate to to preventing it or looking after it. And that's really hard.
1: Yeah, and I think to that point it was very interesting that they focused on biodiversity for the film on Netflix and for the book, mm. because that is an undeniable marker of the health of our planet. And one of the quotes I really loved from the book is, the greater the biodiversity, the more secure all life on earth, which just sums up the whole purpose of David Attenborough as a person, really, that that has been his life's mission. And I think the ripple effect that he has had, I mean, how many conservationists has he inspired? How many actually species of animals has he saved? Because by going into these places from as early as 1954, and showing people clips of animals they'd never really seen. I mean, some may- maybe you've seen it in a zoo, but that's nowhere near the same as seeing it in the wild. And things like saving the whales and the, all the work that he did with gorillas. And it's just incredible the, the impact that one man has had on so many generations. And his voice will forever comfort <laughs> everybody. I think.
0: I, I think as well the way that he's able to create films you know we've all seen blue planet since i was tiny and to create such a beautiful films for every age group that everyone can enjoy do we actually all look forward to it on a sunday night even at university we all watched it every sunday
1: yeah absolutely and it makes me think about the relationship between technology and conservation because that was something that struck me through both the film and the book that as technology has developed and allowed us to do different things, that has heightened people's interest and then engagement in the planet. Mm. So for example, there was a um, man called Bernhard Grimzek and his son, they flew a plane over the Serengeti. And that was when they realized that this Serengeti, which to anybody standing in it would seem endless, did have limits. And then that influenced the way that we thought, well, if it's got limits, we need to then protect it and so that's like a huge psychological shift and the same with when Apollo 8 happened and they took the photograph of the whole earth again that Mm. generated a lot of interest a lot of engagement and then that has brought more money into conservation and yeah I agree with you just going back to a previous point of if you put money from space into money on the environment that wouldn't necessarily make an impact I think with Interstellar what I really was frustrated about when I finished seeing it is that the number of insanely intelligent people that we have on this planet if everybody had some kind of focus on the environment we would be able to solve so much and money is one part of it but it's like energy and mind and bringing everyone together and the number of incredible companies that we've got if everyone just came together like what could we do And I think that's David Aspenborough's role, really, is he's trying to, he is bringing people together in as much as
0: a way as he can. And he's the perfect person to do that because, you know, he's not political. He's not hated by anyone. He's not controversial. Everyone agrees that along with the Queen, he's sort of number one national treasure. Totally. Do you want to um, do the
1: quiz before we move on? Yes, go. Okay. Which country changed its index away from GDP to pressing national concerns, which means that it's more planet conscious? Any ideas? No. New Zealand? Oh, of course. Of Obviously. course it's New Zealand. Which three nations generate electricity without fossil fuels? Finland? Close, but no. Not that Denmark? No. Nope. Iceland? Oh. Paraguay? Albania. Isn't that amazing? Great combination. Okay. All of their electricity comes from renewable energy. Um, And then I'm going to do another positive one. Oh, am I? No, all of them are negative. 50% of the impact on the environment comes from a certain percentage of the population. Do you want to guess how much population is making
0: 50% of the impact? Oh, you mean it's like a tiny percentage that's making half of it? Uh, 5%. A bit more than that,
1: 16%. So it's sort of, you know, it's like the richest people with, you know... The- Fly to China for the day. Yeah, exactly. The other stats that I thought were really interesting is that wild animals are only 4% of the mass body, like weight of everything on Earth. So it's humans and it's domesticated animals or farming animals are 96%. And then wild animals, 4%. Wow. not that crazy? And I just want to finish on the action points that he gave. Curbing population size, and he points to the evidence that the one-child policy is no more successful than equality between genders, people in a country. So the more we have education for girls, and rights for women, and access to contraception, all of these things, those are effective. Eat less meat, use renewable energy and protect our oceans. And his whole section on the book on fishing and overfishing is fascinating. But yes, there are lots of things that we can all do as individuals to help turn this around. The second statistic that we're going to look at today is that between 20 and 30% of synapses in the brain of hibernating animals are culled during winter and then are reformed in the spring. And the reason that this is significant is because Cambridge University has been studying this in relation to cold water therapy. And there's a protein, which is the cold shock protein called RBM3, which they have found can be boosted when stimulated by the cold, which then has implications for dementia, in humans they originally tested it on mice and then there was this group of cold water swimmers in Hampstead Heath who put themselves forward they
0: became... Parliament Hill it's the Parliament Hill Lido isn't it? Exactly yeah. Great I love that Lido.
1: They put themselves forward they had a control group of Tai Chi people and they have found that the people who were doing cold water swimming had significantly higher levels of this cold shock protein and then that has implications for a whole number of different um, conditions and and illnesses, but dementia being the key one. And one of the reasons we wanted to talk about this, I guess, is because we are big fans of Wim Hof, who is known as the Iceman. And previously, he's been under a lot of scrutiny and people saying, well, he's just a genetic anomaly. Like, this isn't something that you can replicate. And how, how can you make all these big claims? And it doesn't do this. And it's just crazy and all of that. And people really are looking at this
0: with a lot more seriousness now. Well, he actually has been published in many scientific journals, because not only has he proved through his own method that he has been able to ward off. For example, they've injected like E. coli into his system. He's managed to prevent his body reacting to the E. coli. And he's also taught people to do it. So it's not just him. But I do think it's fell under this sort of umbrella of kind of hippy-dippy pseudo-medicine. And this is very much kind of put it in the mainstream. I think, I guess, when it relates to dementia, people suddenly go, oh, wow. Lots so of people have elderly relatives or parents that are suffering from dementia, and it's something that I think a lot of people do fear. So it's cool to have Wim Hof and the Wim Hof method in the mainstream. When did I first discover Wim Hof? I think it was this time last year. I watched him on the Goop Labs, even though I'm pretty sure... Teddy introduced me to Wim Hof or maybe Arthur introduced me to Wim Hof before that. And it wasn't really until I saw the Goop Lab documentary that I properly kind of thought, wow, this is really interesting. And I also, when I was watching that thought, I will never go into cold water because uh, it's terrifying. And I have subsequently done it. Um, And it's just fantastic. I don't do it enough. I wish I did. I I wish I had a sea or an ocean to do it one of the biggest things, biggest draws for that sort of therapy amongst the physical benefits is this mentality of, oh my gosh, I can plunge into cold water and my body can survive it and be resilient and I can feel amazing afterwards. That's exactly it. And he came (laughs) to developing this method of which there are
1: three kind of elements. So the first is Mm -hmm. cold, the second Mm -hmm. is breathing, and the third is mindset. Mm -hmm. And he came from this, From his own traumas, I've actually, so this year has been very much about cold water swimming for me. And I came to it from a friend of mine had a period of depression and something that really helped her was going into cold water. And when I when when my mum was very ill earlier this year, I was thinking, what have my friends done that's helped them through difficult things? And it reminded me of this friend and I had already seen the Goop Labs as you reference from last year, but I hadn't really, mm-hmm. I hadn't watched it and then gone and done it. And so I started doing this in April and I have gone every single week into cold water And I absolutely love it. Like I would not miss a week and I find it so cleansing and just really invigorating. And exactly as you were talking about is that if you can go into cold water, knowing that it's going to be difficult, you come out Mm -hmm. and you feel like you can do anything And the other thing I'd say with the whole health issues thing, because I think you do have to be careful, like not everybody can go into cold water, not everybody has it near them, they can maybe have a cold shower. But for me, I wouldn't like to do that. Because it's about going out into nature and being at the sea, being in the river, having that Mm -hmm. moment is much as much a part of the therapy for me as the cold itself. But I haven't been ill since I've done that in April and I know that we haven't been out and about I haven't been on the tube I haven't been at public transport I haven't been involved with like germs in the same way we've all been hand sanitizing so that could be a huge element of it as well but normally you have at least a cold at some point and I promise I have not had
0: anything um some interesting things though about Wim Hof is that he has run a half marathon above the arctic circle barefoot and um I think he's been in a tub of ice for 112 minutes. And he has climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. In shorts. Um, And also, you can also download the app um, for his breathing method. Um, Do you ever do that, Shah? Well, I do the breathing. I do,
1: I think it's called the horse pose. (laughs) Uh, If I'm feeling like I need some extra mental boost and warmth, Mm. um, you basically squat down and then you like press your hands. We'll link a YouTube video. I'm not going to be able to explain
0: this over a podcast. (laughs) Mm. It gives you good fire, though, when you're about to go into cold water. It just warms you up from your core. So it's very good that way.
1: One more fun fact before we move on to the next segment. Did you know that Benedict Cumberbatch and Joe Rogan And Liam Hemsworth are all fans of Wim Hof, and they do his breathing, meditation and cold therapy. And Elizabeth Gilbert also does this with her friends, but it's not so much Wim Hof, it's more just this wild swimming
0: with wonderful women. Okay, the third section of this month's episode is uh, quite a big one. I think we had kind of been preparing for this for ages, uh, given that we covered Kamala Harris as a figure in August, but the US election, which I don't know about you, Shah, but I was hooked to those results. I tried to stay up, stupidly tried to stay up as late as I could, uh, which I knew was going to be a mistake because we all knew that there wasn't going to be a result that night. But the events that unfolded throughout that week were quite extraordinary. How did you find it, Shah?
1: I found it, again, like this knife-edge, nail-biting real-life drama that just went on and on and on. And every single morning, I would wake up, sometimes earlier than I normally do, and I would literally go to my phone straight away, which I normally try and avoid doing, but I just couldn't. I was like, phone, BBC News, what's happened? I knew it was going to be emotional. I did not know that I was going to uncontrollably sob. And I think... That it was because of this sense of relief of not having this person who represents so many things that are wrong with the world at the top of one of the most powerful countries and realising really what the last four years has been like. I think that I would feel similar if Brett Kavanaugh
0: is replaced. I think I'd forgotten what presidential was. So when I was watching Joe Biden give the speech, you know, initially, and then he kind of did some follow ups about, you know, waiting for the vote and all that. I just thought, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is how the leader of the free world is supposed to speak and address the world and be professional and not make broad sweeping statements and be really bullish. You know, it was quite an incredible election it's the highest turnout, you know, ever. Um, Biden got about 51% of the vote and Trump received about 47%. Biden received 80 million votes in the end, which is the largest that any president-elect has ever received. Electoral College was, I think it's 306 to 232. Obviously, there are a few states that haven't kind of been set in stone but that won't happen until the 14th of december when all the electoral college come together and they
1: vote so when i was looking at the map yeah. of um the election which is our figure for me sometimes it seems like there's more red geographically than there is blue but then that's mm, the way that the
0: american,
1: yeah that's the way that the american system works and it's based on the number of people in each state and then that's why mm-hmm. they have a certain number of points right mm-hmm but the closeness of it, so Arizona, it was 49.4% to 49.1%. And in Georgia, it was 49.5%
0: to 49.3%. Yeah. That is just so close. Yeah. And and mainly that's the changing demographics, right? Of the big cities and more. Democrats registering to vote and having this kind of massive discrepancy between the inner city population and the more rural population. And like you said, it is really close. You know, in Pennsylvania, it was still close. And early on in the night, you know, Florida was called really early for Trump. He won that very easily. There's a high Latino population, and they increased their turnout for Trump even more um, in this election. The only The only demographic that actually decreased for Trump was white men. Every other demographic increased. So that's including black votes, women for Trump, marginally. Is this numbers or percentage? Because surely if more people turned out, then the demographic will increase. Percentage. I mean, by a small amount. You know, we're talking from sort of like 8% to 11%, that sort of thing. I think it's very important to remember this was not necessarily like an amazing night for Democrats. And I think that's one of the reasons why we've got to say, look, yo, Trump, if the Democrats were actually wanting to cheat, they would have increased <laughs> what it would have looked like for them in the Senate and Congress, not just the, the presidential election. Because actually, he's going to have a really hard time getting a lot done in the first two years before the midterms. I mean, I don't know. There's going to be so much analysis of this election for a long time. We still don't even have a proper concession speech from Trump. I think there's been one interview of him speaking publicly since, but it's so unprecedented, this whole situation. I think they've now started the transition for Biden's new cabinet. But it's a massive issue that Trump hasn't allowed this to happen sooner because the delay you know, when we look at the 2000 election with Al Gore and Bush, there was a 37-day delay while in Florida was recounted. And a lot of um, political analysts actually weigh a lot of the 9-11 attack into the delay of that handover because of the security issue. So thank God that Biden has been a vice president. So he actually, he's in the know a lot about this sort of thing. To be fair, Trump has the, the right to contest what he wants to contest. And he's done that, and I'm pretty sure all of the lawsuits that he's filed have dropped, bar a couple. I think there are a few still in Michigan and Wisconsin. Whether he will go to the inauguration, who knows? Whether he will run in 2024, who knows? I hope he gets banned from Twitter.
1: That (laughs) would be a great day. No, I
0: disagree. I disagree. You ban Trump from Twitter, you are lighting the fire Which got him elected, which is shutting down people with political views that we don't agree with.
1: That is true. The reason I said that with him in Twitter is because as a world leader, you have different rules. I just want him to be treated in exactly the same way as everybody else is. I think that's what I have an issue with because just because someone's Mm -hmm. a leader doesn't mean that they should have. Extra freedom of speech. I mean, it goes back to what we were talking about in the introduction, doesn't it? Because that's been the whole issue around Trump and Twitter the whole time.
0: Yeah, but it- t- true. But we also have to we also have to bear in mind that, and this is going to be quite a controversial point of view. And I feel like I'm going to preface this by saying I voted for Biden. I'm very happy that Biden is president. I'm not at all saying that I'm a Trump supporter. However, we have to acknowledge that the press both here and in America, have never, ever given Trump positive coverage or highlighted a single thing that he has done well. And like it or not, there are things that he has done well. And I think that actually, we have to be so careful as a society. And I think Biden does know this, right, which is why he's not necessarily engaging in all kind of inflammatory rhetoric. But that's very, very dangerous. That you know, That's one of the reasons that he's there, is because huge parts of the population are seeing points of view that are portrayed in the media and think that absolutely doesn't re- represent me. Trump comes in, bullish as he is, and is like, I'm going to stand up for you. I'm going to stand up for you and you and you and you. And they go, yeah, that's my president.
1: Yeah, I think it's a very good point to make. But I think that for me, regardless of what somebody does and their policies and what they have as their action points and their priorities leaders I think that this is really what the um the coronavirus has very much shown as well it's lots of leaders have done things wrong but some people have led in a way where it's comforted people it's reassured people it's made them feel welcome and and just guided in a sense and I think that's where Jacinda Ardern is just flawless like regardless of whether she's made a you know spending decision that people don't like or not give enough money to this or that it's the way what she represents and her values and the way that that trickles down into the rest of society cannot be underestimated and i think that is what i'm so relieved about with biden because we've got this family man who this was quite a few years ago he sent around a memo to to all of the people who work for him saying if you do not take time off to go to family commitments, these include graduation, if there's an illness in the family, marriages, bar mitzvahs, everything. I will be disappointed that you have not taken that time off. I mean, what a contrast, especially in America where time off is, they've got a completely different culture and attitude than the the UK. And it's things like that, that I just think I just am so happy that we have that person at the top now. And even if they are limited by of the senate and all sorts of other things it is that person on the poster who calls out racism in the country and who references the poet langston hughes who is an african-american poet part of what's called the harlem renaissance and i i just love that reference which is a poem a dream deferred it's just so different such a huge
0: huge difference what i love so much about this cabinet is it's so diverse I think the communications team is completely female. They have the first woman as head of the Treasury. They also have a woman in the director of national intelligence role and as the ambassador to the UN. And they have politicians who have been refugees themselves who are heading up the immigration and like home office equivalent. And I just think, gosh, what a modern American cabinet this is. It's so exciting. I cannot tell you how excited I am about it. The fact that as well that... We have a female vice president. I just never thought I'd see that in my lifetime. And I just, I'm so, so happy. I cannot tell you.
1: What would you say, just playing devil's advocate, people who would see that headline of all women communications team and say, well, is that
0: diverse? I think you'd have to look at the cabinet as a whole. Uh, I think there is still more men than women overall. The team that he has in terms of that communication team are all extremely accomplished and talented in their own right. I understand that criticism. And 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 yes, I think overall, we need to make sure it's 50-50. The, the way to combat lack of diversity is to not necessarily completely overhaul it. And therefore, we have women in charge everywhere. Because you're right, that's not diverse either. But I don't think that's the case in this scenario. Elements of your identity can
1: become quite arbitrary, but they can represent a way of marking of like, okay, we've got lots of different opinions here. That's going to make us really good at making decisions because
0: we will be covering lots of elements that you might not otherwise have thought of. Yeah, absolutely. I also have had so many people just message me and just be like, oh my God, Biden is so old. And I would like to see a younger candidate next time. I think older and wiser, yes, but look at all of the incredible young people that are changing the world for the better and have grown up in the new world now. And I think there's space for both. The thing with Biden in this election is Biden didn't win because he's Biden. Biden won because he's not Trump. And that's easy to forget when we're thinking of all the positive things about him. But that is why he won. Like, no doubt about it. But I think that he's
1: taking up the reins very gracefully. I'm very excited. And like you, I have a lot of hope for the next four years and that they will look very different to the previous years, especially when it comes to America's relationship with the environment and with mm-hmm. issues like race.
0: Thank you for listening to this month's episode of The Figure Podcast. As always, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Podcast, And please, please let us know what you think. Get in touch, leave a review, tell us where you're listening from, what do you think about the US election? I'm dying to know. Thank you so much to everybody and just all the listeners
1: that we've ever had. We're just so happy that we still have people listening to us and we will see you next month.